Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, we now are coming to the final chapter in our walk through the book of Hebrews. We've uh, been in Hebrews uh, for just over a year now, and uh, today we're going to begin our walk through this last chapter of Hebrews. Now, in the closing chapters, the last few, we've seen uh, a picture of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, the writer presents to us really a walk through the Old Testament uh, of what biblical faith has looked like and, and what biblical faith is and how we're called to live by faith. And then in chapter 12, uh, we saw that that call to live by faith is really a call to run the race of faith. And we were given that picture uh, in Hebrews 12 of what it means to run that race and run it with endurance and as we run it to set our eyes on Jesus Christ. And now in this final chapter, the writer gives us uh, some closing thoughts on what that, that race of faith, that walk of faith, that life of faith entails and looks like. And really some, some very practical matters are dealt with in this final chapter. So uh, we're going to begin our look at Hebrews 13 today by looking at verses 1 through 6. And so I'll read that for us uh, and then pray for our time in God's Word this Lord's Day. And this is what the Word of God says. This is what the writer of Hebrews uh, wrote down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was God's Word for His people then, and it's, it's God's Word for His people today. And this is what it says. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you, are also, you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you would pray with me for our time in God's word today. Father, we thank you for this day when we can come to your word together. We're coming to your word together, but we're doing that dispersed. We're doing that again in a different way. But Lord, we, we do pray uh, that very soon that we would be able to come to your word together together. Uh, Lord, we pray as we've tentatively set those plans to regather on June 7th, uh, Lord, we pray that that plan would come to fruition. Uh, we pray, God, that we would be able to do that. We pray that as we make preparations to regather, uh, that you would give us wisdom and discernment and planning, that you would uh, protect us, that you would help us to stay healthy in this process. But Lord, more than any of those things, uh, help us to seek to please you and to honor you. And as we consider this passage and this chapter, which looks at sacrifices that are pleasing to you, Lord, help us to consider in the moments we have today, help us to consider as we look to your word today, are we living a life that is pleasing to you? Are we making sacrifices that are pleasing to you? Are we offering you what is good and what is best and that which gives you, brings you glory? Lord, help us. 
to discern those things through the power of your Holy Spirit as we walk through this passage today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there in your copy of God's Word, uh, you may have a, a heading above this chapter. Uh, in my Bible, it says, Sacrifices Pleasing to God. And of course, that, that comes from the text itself where we are called in this chapter uh, to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Now, when you hear that, that phrase sacrifice or that, term, that phrase offering sacrifices, uh, you probably, especially since we're in a biblical context this morning, uh, you think of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Now, the first time we see a sacrifice offered in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 3. Now, there in the creation account and in the account of the fall, you have a picture of Adam and Eve uh, bear before God and unashamed, but as soon as they sin, as soon as they disobey God, all of a sudden uh, they realize that they are bare and they feel ashamed and they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. Of course, as you read through the biblical account, uh, God comes and, and He addresses them with truth and calls out their sin. He graciously offers redemption and points the way towards the cross of Jesus Christ in Genesis 3.15. But just after that, in Genesis 3.21, we see something very, very interesting. And something that really sets the stage for the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament. We see that God Himself offers a covering for Adam and Eve. And He does that through the skin of an animal. And so there's a blood sacrifice made that we read about in Genesis 3 in order to cover the bareness, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. There's a picture there of what will then follow throughout the Old Testament of this sacrificial system, this instruction that God would give His people, this blood offering that would need to be made for sin. And of course, that's a system that the writer of Hebrews talks quite a bit about. In fact, he, he points out for us, he's laid out for us how that Old Testament, Old Covenant, sacrificial system, how it was insufficient. How the offering of an animal, the blood of an animal was not sufficient to cover the sin of man. Therefore, therefore, it had to be offered again and again and again. And he does this in a way that really sets the stage for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For us to see that the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, the blood offering there, was once for all. And then we're able to behold the beauty of the gospel. And he talks in Hebrews 9 about how the blood sacrifices in the temple did not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But then a few verses later he says, But by the means of his own blood, speaking of Jesus, he secures for us eternal redemption. And so he, he, he uses the Old Testament sacrificial system to help us see how it was insufficient, how it points towards the blood sacrifice of Jesus, which is fully sufficient, and then covers us. Therefore, no longer is a sacrifice necessary. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 12, he says, But when Christ had offered, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But we see there the richness of the gospel truth that Jesus once and for all paid the debt of our sin. Therefore, this single sacrifice has been made. It is full and it is finished. 
No other sacrifice is needed, which then should raise the question for us. Why then, when we get to Hebrews chapter 13, is the writer here talking about sacrifices again? (laughs) If Christ's sacrifice was full and finished and complete and, and all that was required, then why now is the writer saying we need to make sacrifices? Well, it's important to understand that he's talking about a different type of sacrifice here. Uh, The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 is not talking about blood sacrifices. He is not talking about blood offerings. He's not taking us back to the temple and saying, okay, go get an unblemished animal and bring it here and bring it to the high priest and they'll offer it uh, on behalf of your sins. No, he is saying now is those who are blood-bought brothers and sisters in the faith, those who are born again, those who are new covenant believers, those who are running this race with their eyes on Jesus, Well, now we bring an offering. We bring a sacrifice. But it's not a blood sacrifice. It's not an animal offering. But we make a sacrifice nonetheless. So so what is that? Well, that's what he unpacks in Hebrews 13. Hey, he walks us through what these sacrifices are. In verse 16, he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there he very clearly says, well, we don't neglect to do good. So we must do good and we must share what we have because those are now the sacrifices. Those are now the offerings that we make. But that's not the only thing that he mentions. There's quite a few things. And so that's why we're going to be looking at this chapter over the course of several Lord's Days. So we can kind of unpack a bit what these sacrifices pleasing to God are. In our text today, we have several things mentioned. And at first glance, it can almost seem like these are just uh, different post-it notes stuck up on a board that in and of themselves don't really relate or connect to one another. But I I think there is a connection. I think they build on one another. And hopefully uh, you'll see that as we walk through this passage. So what kind of sacrifices are pleasing to God? What kind of sacrifice are we called to bring to God? Well, well, the first thing we see, uh, point one there, is that we are called to love our Christian brothers and sisters. We're called to love our Christian brothers and sisters. In verse 1 he says very clearly, let brotherly love continue. Now, <laughs> this isn't an exempt cause from sisterly love. <laughs> Uh, Technically, what that passage means is that we are to love our brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, Oftentimes in the Greek, when we see that reference to brother, uh, technically that's a reference to brother and sister. It's a reference to our, our family of faith, our household of faith. Literally, what he's saying here is that as we run this race and we endure and we persevere, we need to endure and persevere in loving our blood brothers and our blood sisters. That's exactly what he's saying there technically in this passage. Now when we think about blood brother or blood sister, our mind might quickly go to biological, that that, that this is someone I'm related to by blood. I learned very early, uh, 10 years ago when we moved to Bloomfield, uh, that oftentimes when people were referring to others, they'd refer to them as family, but it didn't always mean they were blood family. So sometimes I might ask the question or somebody make a, re- make a reference of, well, they're, they're not kin, they're not a blood relative. And so we hear blood brother, blood sister, our mind kind of goes there, but that's not the kind of blood brother and sister that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. No, here he's talking about those who are brothers and sisters 
through the blood of Jesus Christ. These are those who have been bought by the blood. These are those who have been purchased by the blood. They, they are now our brothers and our sisters in the Lord because they too have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. I've had the blessing over the years of, uh, of seeing each of my four children uh, commit their lives to the Lord uh, uh, come under the, the lordship of Jesus and, and had the, the great blessing of being able to baptize all four of my children. And in that process of talking to them about the gospel and especially that, that process of preparation for baptism, one of the things that I've said to each one of them is that not only do I have the great blessing of being your earthly father, but now I have an even greater blessing that I'm your, your brother in Jesus, that you're my brother or you're my sister. And, and especially when they were younger, this kind of confused them a bit. Well, how is my dad my brother? But, but that's the picture that we have here. That as followers of Jesus, that, that if you are a Christian, if you have come to an understanding of the gospel through which you understand that, that you were born a sinner. The scripture says we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. That you understand just like Adam and Eve in the garden who rebelled against God, that, that we're born with a rebellious heart. The scripture says none of us is good. None of us is righteous. Each of us goes his own way. And because of that, we are separated. Just as God removed Adam and Eve from his presence in the garden, we are separated from God. We are deserving, just as they were, of the full wrath of God for our sin. The wages of sin, what we have earned for our sin, is death. But the good news of the gospel is that while we were still Sinners, Jesus died for us. He paid our penalty on the cross. That sacrifice was made once for all by a single sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross in my place and in your place. And if we will confess that we are sinners, if we will repent and turn from our sin, if we'll place our trust in Jesus, then we are covered by the blood of Jesus. And then we're part of the family. God is our heavenly father. Jesus is our elder brother. And, and for you and for I, now we are brothers and sisters in the faith. And this is the mark of genuine faith. How we treat our brothers and sisters. That this command we have here, let brotherly love continue. There's assumption in this command that brotherly love has already taken place. Because this is the mark of of genuine faith and genuine belief that we now have a love. We love because why? God first loved us. And so now we show that love to others. Others who may not be like us, may not look like us, may not talk like us, may not believe what we believe, may not have the same political persuasions that we have. But these are our brothers and our sisters and we are to show them love 1 John 3, we read this, 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident, again, here, here's the picture. It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do, do you see what's being said there? 
See, it's easy on one hand for us to uh, turn on the television, turn on the news, or just make observations in our culture and to look at the one who does not practice righteousness, the one who is unrighteous and unholy and who is proud in their sin and who is shaking their fist at God. It's easy for us to look at that person and say, well, it's evident they're not a child of God. But notice what else he says. It's not just those who practice unrighteousness. It's the one who doesn't love his brother. And so the scripture is very clear here. If we do not love our brother and sister in the faith, then friends, we may not be a brother and a sister in the faith. The evidence, the fruit reveals the root. And if the evidence and the fruit of our life is unloving spirit, if the evidence and fruit of our life is hatred, towards a brother or sister, if we find ourselves constantly gossiping and slandering and speaking ill will against those who are part of the household of faith, and then the scripture says that that's a sober warning that maybe we're not the brother or the sister we thought that we were. That this clear command we're given here, that this very first command we're given in this chapter is that we are to love our brother and our sister. So, so what does that mean practically? You know, it's one thing to say, well, you need to love your brother or your sister. I've had conversations with my children over the years whenever there's been a, a little difficulties between them, fights between them, and oftentimes I might bring up a passage like this and say, you know, well, you're both followers of Jesus. You, you need to love your brother. You need to love your sister. Well, what's that look like? <laughs> Well, what's it really practically look like to love your brother or sister? Well, the writer here gives us some examples of that. And notice in verse 2, and this context of brotherly love. He says, verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Uh, you read that, and it can seem a, a bit cryptic, but it's important to consider the context of the day and age that this was written. And it's a day and age that's not so different than some parts of our world today. Some third world countries are, are not so different than the context that was written here. And so, for example, I think about uh, a trip last year I was on with a couple of our, our church members. We were in uh, West Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, a very poor, impoverished third world part of Africa. And uh, we had gone to a, a city where there was a church that had been established, and that church was seeking to reach that community with the gospel. And we had gone there uh, to, to preach and to teach and to encourage those brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, these were our brothers, these were our sisters, and uh, in this particular city, uh, when we would travel, uh, many times we would just camp out somewhere, but in this particular city, we were going to stay in a hotel. Now, uh, just let me help you understand here, this is not a Holiday Inn, this is not a, a Drury Inn, this is not like a hotel we'd have here in the West. Uh, essentially, this was kind of a, a compound or a home of sorts that had been made into an inn, uh, been made to a place where travelers could stay. And as we pulled up to this compound, there was a sign there, and the missionary noted that he, he never seen this sign, that it was quite unusual because this sign basically said uh, that this hotel was not there for immoral activities. 
that this hotel restricted, and it listed off a lot of immoral activities. And as he explained this to me, he said that uh, pretty much in this area of the world that they were in, that's what motels were for and hotels were for. Uh, They were for very immoral things to take place. That's why people would go there, and it was very unusual to find one uh, that explicitly said, we're not going to allow any of this stuff to take place there. And that's what allowed us to, to then stay there. And that, I believe, is a bit of the context that's being spoken of here in Hebrews 13. This hospitality that's been given to strangers was necessary in the family of faith because in this first century world, these brothers and sisters in the faith who'd be traveling through the places even then for them to stay were often places for immorality. They were places that were filthy and oftentimes they were places that were very expensive. And so the the very clear practical command here is one of the ways you show brotherly love is when the brother or sister in the faith who you don't know them, they're they're a stranger to you, but they're your blood-bought brother or sister, you welcome them into your home. You, You give them a place to stay. Why? Because they are family. And that's how you treat your family. And so these Christian travelers would know that they could count on this warm welcome for those who were in the household of faith. That's why there's a call here to show that brotherly love practically by being generous with what we have, with our possessions and with our homes. The writer here reminds his readers of Abraham's generosity that we read about in Genesis 18 when there were strangers that had come and he opened up his home to them. He offered food to them and unbeknownst to him at the time, it ends up these are messengers from the Lord. And so that's the reference we have here, I believe, of don't neglect to show this hospitality because some have even entertained angels. And so the call here is to be a brother, be a sister who shows this love in this way. Now, again, this reference, this context in the first century and to even parts of the world today uh, may seem a bit foreign for us uh, because we do have the holiday inns and we do have hotels and we have places people can stay. And we don't, we don't live in this context where uh, believers are coming through town and we don't know them. Hey, can I stay at your house? But, but we're still called to be hospitable. And I believe as New Covenant Christians, we need to ask ourselves constantly, how can we apply this Christian hospitality in our context, in our community? Because we're still called to it, even if our context is a bit different than that of Hebrews 13. And we read it in other places, Romans chapter 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. So, so we are to, to give to the needs of other brothers and sisters in the faith, and we are to show them hospitality. First Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another. So this is a reminder to us, and it's a bit much needed reminder, I believe, because we, we can tend to fall under that thinking of a, you know, a man's home is his castle, that, that this is my place and these walls, this is, this is, this is my dominion here. Well, no, this is something God has provided me then I might be a blessing to others. And and how can I open up my home? And how can I be hospitable, especially to brothers and sisters in the faith? And honestly, we're we're at a time now when I think this is 
a much needed reminder because in the midst of all the restrictions uh, that we've been under for this coronavirus, as those restrictions are starting to get lifted, one of the first things that we're seeing now that's, that's allowed and that's permissible is for us to have smaller gatherings. And, and what a great opportunity for followers of Jesus to have brothers or sisters in Christ in a way that, that doesn't jeopardize them, but to have them into their homes and into their backyards and just to spend time with them. I was blessed just this last week uh, to spend some time with, with a couple of folks who have uh, really been a great encouragement to me in my faith, uh, one who has mentored me greatly in my faith, others who are, who are strong brothers in my faith, and just to go to their homes and sit in their backyard and, and, and talk with them and fellowship with them and to talk about the Lord with them. This is hospitality that they showed to me, and this is hospitality that we're to show to the family of faith. This is what brotherly and sisterly love looks like. And he goes on to give us another example. He says, verse 3, I Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now again, remember the context of Hebrews. Now these are brothers and sisters in the faith who are being mistreated. Their property is being plundered. Now you see people being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And in this context, which again is different than ours, when you were imprisoned for, for your needs to be met, your, your family and others had to come meet those needs. And so you'll read accounts, especially uh, the first century church, and, and even not that long ago in the church, and not so different in different places in the world, where uh, someone's in prison for their faith, and their meals come from other Christians. Their, their, their provision comes from other Christians. Family members bring them their, their meal there in prison. And the context here is very much that, that the body of Christ, the Hebrews, were called to remember those who have been in prison for the sake of the gospel. Now, again, the context here, you've got some Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to consider whether they really want to be a part of this family or not. That they're being tempted to walk away. That they're considering leaving this household of faith. And so you can imagine how this might be for them that they know someone who's now been arrested for the sake of the gospel, who's imprisoned for their faith, who's in need of food and fellowship, and they've got to decide, well, do I really want to associate myself with that person? Because I might get put in prison with them. I might lose my livelihood too. You know, perhaps there were some Hebrew believers who were trying to live just under the radar in this Jewish community. While they internally may believe these things about Jesus being the Messiah, that they didn't want that to be too evident to the people around them because they might have their property plundered as well. They might be put in prison as well. But the writer here reminds them, no, you are to love your brother or your sister. And part of that love is you not only identify yourself with them, you, you go and you help meet those needs. And you take care of them because that's what you're called to do because that's your family. And again, it's easy for us to look at this and say, well, that's, that's different than our context today. And yet, we live in a world today where brothers and sisters are still being imprisoned for their faith. And some would say now more than ever. Uh, that there's more martyrs for the sake of the gospel today than ever, that there's more being persecuted for the sake of the gospel today than ever. And we are a, a bit insulated from this in our own nation and context. Uh, we use terms like persecution in the context of, well, um, you know, I got mistreated at work. I was persecuted for my faith. 
But there are brothers and sisters around the world who persecution for them means their property is plundered, they are put in prison, and then some who die for the sake of the gospel. So, so how can we show love to these brothers or these sisters? Well, we can do it. And we're blessed there are organizations that are set up to, to make this possible. Uh, one, of this, one of the organizations you may be familiar with is Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs, you can learn more about them uh, on their website, persecution.com. They send out a publication that that helps you to know specific stories of those who are martyrs and those who are being persecuted for their faith. And they even have a system set up so that, that we who are in a part of the world where we aren't facing the same kind of persecution, we can even financially support the families of those whose loved ones have been imprisoned. Uh, who, who are in prison for the sake of the gospel. We, we can partner with them. We can pray with them. We can even give towards those things. And I'd encourage you to consider that resource, persecution.com, Voice of the Martyrs, because we are called to love our Christian brothers and sisters. And we, too, today are still called to remember those who are in prison as if we were in prison with them. <laughs> so if today your property was plundered, If today you were put in prison for the sake of the gospel, if that happened to you today, how would you want the body of Christ to respond? How would you hope that the body of Christ would rally under you and beside you? How would you want your family to be provided for and taken care of? We have those opportunities to do those things today, and we're called to do those as a way to love our brother and to love our sister. This is part of our calling and this part of our offering and our sacrifices that the Scripture says are pleasing to God. Number two, we are called to holiness in our view and practice of marriage. We're called to holiness in our view and practice of marriage. So the writer here moves from, okay, this is how we express our brotherly love to our our brothers and sisters in the faith. This is how we love brothers and sisters that we haven't even met yet and how we entertain those brothers and sisters in the faith who are strangers. This is how we show brotherly love to our brother and sister in the faith who's been in prison. And, And now he brings this brotherly home. He tightens this up a bit to this expression of love within the context of marriage between a man and a wife and how this too is evidence of genuine faith how this too uh, is a testimony to a lost and dying world that that we are blood bought brothers and sisters in the faith it's reflected in our view of marriage and in our practice of marriage he says it this way in verse 4 let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And so the writer of Hebrews here, again, isn't just giving us a random list of things. He's building on an argument. And part of that argument is to say, this is how the race of faith is expressed. This is the evidence that we are genuine believers. And as he walks through this evidence, he comes to marriage. And he says, we're called to holiness in our view of marriage, and in our practice of marriage. We'll start with the view there in verse 4. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. That that word honor means great worth, value. It means that it is precious. Now why would a marriage be valued and honored? Because it's a gift from God. God designed marriage. He purposed marriage for His glory. 
And yet you consider the context we live in today. For many in our culture, I think that they hold the wedding day in honor, that the wedding day is what's of great worth, it's what's valuable. In fact, the, the average price I read, I believe this statistic's even a couple of years old, I don't know what it might be today, uh, but the average price then, the average amount spent on a wedding then was in the neighborhood of thirty-five to $40,000. We live in a day and an age in a context where people spend more time and money planning a marriage, and sometimes they spend longer planning the marriage than the marriage itself actually lasts. So, so what we hold in honor is this event rather than this institution. But the call here is the institution. The call here is to honor marriage. Why? Because God has designed it. When we see that picture in the garden, Adam was, uh, marriage was not in the mind of Adam. Marriage was not in the mind of Eve. This is something that God designed and God brought them two together. It was God's design for Adam and Eve, for one man and one woman in a covenant relationship, a one flesh union. This was the design that God brought to Adam and Eve. And of course, we know that that marriage was affected by the fall and by sin. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it wasn't just a sin against God. They then sinned against each other. There, there's accusation. Uh, there's disruption in the fellowship and the union they even have with one another. And so as God offers this picture of redemption, we see that redemption can come in that marriage. We see how important the gospel is to marriage. We see how the gospel is lived out in marriage, how we need to show grace and forgiveness to one another, how we need to honor God in our marriages. And so although that the institution was stained in the garden by sin, as everything else has been, it's still an institution that can bring and does bring honor to God. Biblical marriage, our view of it needs to be right because it was designed by God for the good of man and for the glory of God. This one man, one woman, one flesh union is what honors God and it's what he's designed and what, it's what he's given to us. And so this is the view, our view of marriage is to be the view that we're given from scripture. And of course, we live in a world where that view has been attacked, that view is mocked. Uh, if you go in, in any place in the public square today, and say that marriage is to be a, a one man, one woman, one flesh union for life, uh, you will come under attack by those outside of the church. You will even come under attack by those who claim to be in the church. And yet again, what, what's being presented to us in Hebrews 13? It, it is the picture of that this is what is pleasing to God. What, what pleases God is for our views of marriage, which is designed by God, to reflect that which he has given to us in his word that is for our good and is for his glory. And we are to have this view, whether we are married or not, adult or child, whoever we are, if we are part of the household of faith, we are to have this view of marriage, but not just this view. We're called to holiness then in our practice of marriage. Verse 4, he says, Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Now again, you, you think about the world today we live in, and our world is consumed by, our world is marked by sexual immorality and adultery. 
It is hard to turn on a television set to any random uh, channel out there and not see something that is sexually suggestive and not see relationships portrayed that are full of sexual morality and adultery. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying very clearly here is that while that may be the world, because the world was like that then just as it is now, while that may be the mark of the world, that shouldn't be the mark of the believer. That, That Christian marriage should be marked by holiness. And there's a warning here that that if we are pursuing that worldly picture of intimacy, if we are pursuing that which is outside the boundaries of what God has put before us, a one man, one woman, one flesh union, and the context and covenant of biblical marriage, if we have allowed our mindset about these things to be more affected and informed by the world than by the word. Notice the sober warning that the writer of Hebrews presents us with here. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Again, consider the context here. He's given us this picture of running the race and finishing the race. He's given us this picture of enduring through persecution and enduring through all these things. But what does he say very clearly? But if you choose to to put on the, the, the jersey of the believer and run the race of the believer and yet you associate with and your life is a part of this sexual morality, this adultery, this worldly definition of intimacy and of marriage then be warned, God's judgment is coming. I find it interesting that when you start to talk about these things in the church today, often one of the first things people will say to you is, well, who are you to judge? (laughs) Who are you to tell me? Well, friends, our responsibility as loving brothers and sisters in Christ is to warn of God's judgment. Who am I? I'm just a person reading what God's Word says to you, who believes it, and who's trying to encourage you in this race because I want you to finish as well. I, I don't have anything to gain personally, whether you believe this or not, whether you repent or not, but, but this is your soul that's at stake. And so the most loving thing we can do as a brother, this, this brotherly love that we're called to have, the most loving thing we can do as a sister is not to look the other way, is not to be selective in the sins that we call people to repent of. The most loving thing we can do is to share the truth of God's word and what his view and what the practices we're called to of intimacy and of marriage and to pray with one another and to encourage one another. And when we see a brother or sister who, who's starting to veer off the course to put our arm around them and to pull them back, that they might finish well. And this is what we are called to, to this holiness and how we view marriage and how we practice marriage. And then third, we find that we are called uh, to reject the love of money. Now again, it can seem like the, the writer's just kind of jumping around here in these things that he's mentioning, but, but again, I think there's a, 
there's a flow of his argument, and I think a big flow of his argument is we, we are to love one another, we are to love the brothers and sisters of the faith, and, and by our love, that's the evidence to a lost and dying world that we truly are believers, and we are to, to love in the context of marriage, husbands and wives, in a way that reflects the, the goodness and the glory of God. But there's something that we're not to love, <laughs> that this love we have for one another, that's what we strive towards, but this idolatry that can so easily creep into our lives, this love for the things of the world, well, we are to reject that and we are to keep our lives free of that. And that's why it says in verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. See, in the context in Hebrews 13, there was a culture where people could be consumed by money. There was a culture where they could be consumed by material wealth. And there was the temptation for many of them to, to put that, that money and that wealth on a pedestal in their life where it became the, the chief driving force and, and it became what they were looking towards in their race. They, they were racing towards financial security. And here the writer says, no, you are to race towards the kingdom of God. And racing towards the kingdom of God, maybe you'll have financial security, but maybe you'll have to make decisions that make you financially insecure. Maybe as you race this, race this run towards Jesus, maybe in running that you'll find exposed in your heart this covetousness, this idolatry, and this love for material things. And this is something we are warned of and warned against over and over and over. This is what Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 6 where we read, Jesus says, Do not, again, flee from this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he goes on to say, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now here, Jesus doesn't say money's evil, material things are evil, take a vow of poverty. But what is he saying? He's saying there's a very real temptation that exists for us. Whether we lived in the first century of the church or whether we live Today, in 2020, there's a very real temptation for us to be driven by and consumed by material things and money. And that love of money will rob us of contentment. Because if money is our God, and if money is our love, then we will never have enough, and we will just be chasing more. What's he say here? Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Be content. That that contentment comes for the Hebrew believer in understanding that their provision is from God. Now again, consider the context. That there are some people here in this church of Hebrew believers who, who had likely inherited uh, property that went back generations that they had 
farms and they had uh, material things that had been handed down to them in this culture. That there are elder sons and families that are being written to here who, who are to be the stewards now of this inheritance. They have children and they're looking towards passing this on to their children one day. But now because they've taken a stand for the gospel of Jesus, now because they've identified themselves with the cross of Christ, now all that is at jeopardy. And now for some, that property has been plundered. And now for some, those crops that they prayed over, somebody's come in and wiped them out and they've been destroyed. And now their homes have been torn apart. And now they're looking around at devastation and they're looking at their children and they're looking at their future and they're trying to figure out what in the world am I going to do? And what is the word from God? Be content. Be content with what you have. You can imagine in that situation, looking at that devastation and hearing that word to be content and, and perhaps growing a bit bitter, a bit aggravated. Be, be content with what? But, but isn't that the point that the writer of Hebrews had been making? That, that all this stuff we have, it's not eternal. And if something like this were to befall us today, if everything we have was wiped out in a moment, I mean, for some of you, as soon as all the coronavirus news started to hit the stock market, some of you literally got onto a computer and got onto your financial accounts, and overnight you saw what you had perhaps spent decades building up, you saw immediately much of it gone. God is saying to us in that moment, Friend, this is not your eternal security. This is not your heavenly dwelling. This is not your eternal home. That has not been diminished one bit, and that will not be diminished one bit. And when we lose things in this world, it should make us and call us all the more to set our eyes on Jesus and on what is to come. Do our brother and sister in the faith who's being persecuted and whose very life is being threatened for the sake of the gospel, they may take their life today, and that will send them to their heavenly home all that much faster. To the brother or sister in the faith today who is having their property plundered, their property destroyed, who is losing their livelihood, they can be content because their hope is not in the things of this world. Their hope is in what is to come. And for you and I today, in this day, in this this just strange and unusual time of coronavirus, when, when we can so easily be consumed with thoughts about businesses closing and financial insecurity and what's going to happen to our communities and to our country and, and where we can just, our minds can race with these things. What an opportunity we have to say to a world that doesn't know Jesus and to a world that this is all they've got. What an opportunity for us to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What an opportunity to share the gospel. And this doesn't mean that we don't care about things, that we don't take care of things. We're to be content with what we have. There's, the scripture tells us if we don't work, we don't eat. We're not to be lazy. We're to be good citizens of this world. But we need to be careful that we don't fall in love with this world. We need to be careful that the things of this world don't become the source of our contentment. Because if we've learned nothing else, 
in the last few months. Hopefully we've learned that the things of this world are not secure. They will come and they will go. Your vocation, your job, your career, these are opportunities God gives us for our good and for his glory. But let's use them for that. Let's not let them become idols and let's certainly not let them become gods. Let's use them for our good and for God's glory. And this is just part of what it looks like to make sacrifices that are pleasing to God. To, to look to God's word and consider, how can I love my brothers and the sisters in faith today? How can I show greater hospitality to my brothers and sisters in the faith today? Perhaps those I don't even know. How can I be a supporter of ministries and missionaries around the world who are in need today? That's a way that I can do this. How can I remember those who are in prison and those who have been mistreated? Because that's my brother and that's my sister. And how can I rally around them? How can I make sure that, that my views and my practice of marriage is one that honors God and that reflects His will and His word. How can I look around at material things in my life today and make sure that those things haven't become elevated and haven't taken a place they shouldn't have? How can I just use those for, for my good and for God's glory and not let them become the love of my life? Now, that's just a few questions for us to consider as we think about what it means to live a life and to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. There are others for us to consider. And so we'll pick back up on those next Lord's Day. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank you for these reminders from your word. And I pray, God, that they would serve as more than reminders today. I pray, Lord, that there would be reminders here that would bring us to repentance. I pray there would be reminders here that would compel us Lord, towards love and good deeds. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to practically look at our lives today, this Lord's Day, and to examine how can I better reflect and better practice what I'm being called to in Hebrews 13. And I pray, Lord, as always, that we would do those things not in the flesh, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.